Hello and welcome to Talking HE, my name is Santanu Vasant. In this episode we speak to Dr Nicole Brown, Associate Professor at UCL's Institute of Education and Director of Social Research and Practice and Education Limited. We discuss a number of topics around the idea of ableism in higher education. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, um, thank you very much for inviting me to this. Um, my name is Nicole Brown. I'm um, Associate Professor at UCL Institute of Education, and I'm also Director of Social Research Practice and Education Limited, my own company, um, for which I'm doing some of my work as well. Thanks, Nicole, for joining us on Talking HE. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the research you've done around ableism in academia? Yes, thank you. So. Um, I'm, I, I came to the topic of ableism more by coincidence than anything. Um, I started out doing a, a, a research project on fibromyalgia and the construction of academic identity under the influence of fibromyalgia. Um, that was my doctoral research. Um, fibromyalgia is one of those conditions that's quite contest, contested. Um, it's diagnosed by exclusion more than anything. Um, there isn't a direct blood test or anything. So it's quite a, quite a, a weird condition and, and not necessarily recognized very well. Um, and the other thing that makes it difficult with fibromyalgia is that you've got a lot of um, different symptoms that wax and wane. So um, fibromyalgia itself is characterized by uh, physical pain, widespread, persistent physical pain, um, cognitive dysfunctions, which people often describe as brain fog, um, sleep disturbances, um, psychological disorders. Um, and we don't really know the kind of connection as to what comes first. It's a bit like the chicken and egg situation you know do you have the pain first and then you become depressed or are you Mm -hmm. depressed first and that makes you experience the pain you know it's it's one of those things that people don't really understand at this stage but what happens um with those symptoms is that they wax and wane over days and often over hours so it could be that you're doing completely well at eight o'clock in the morning and by 10 you're bedridden um, because of the pain because of what's going on with your body And what I was particularly interested in was how do um, people that are academics make sense of their lives and their academic experience if they've got a condition that means that they've got brain fog, they've got cognitive dysfunctions. Mm. Now, those brain fog and cognitive dysfunctions um, manifest themselves differently in different people, but it's either kind of a woolly feeling so that you don't really process what's being said but it basically means that your brain kind of doesn't really do its job properly. Right. Um, and then there is the other thing about sequencing. So, for example, you would be putting um, toothpaste on your toothbrush after you have already brushed your teeth, um, you know, which is obviously the, the sequencing gets completely muddled up. But that's again, that's the brain kind of, you know, doing its, its thing. So that's that was the starting point. I was just trying to um, identify what it means to have fibromyalgia in higher education. And 
it was during that research that people, um, the research participants were talking about the ableism um, that they were encountering in higher education. And that really um, brought me to that topic. Um, I hadn't I hadn't encountered ableism as a concept, if you like, before, quite in that way hmm. um, before that research. It was really the, the participants' narratives and their life stories and their lived experiences that brought me to that topic. Do you think that universities do enough um, now um, to recognise the, the, this, um, uh, this disorder? Because often, as you described, it's, it's, it's almost a... It's quite hard to diagnose, and it's. it's a, would it be right to say that it would, be, it would almost be a, dif, a hidden disability? Um, it is. It is a hidden disability. It, it can be very, very um, impactful on people's lives, and it, it can be quite, quite severe. Um, do I think universities are doing enough? Um, the answer is no. I don't think they do. But I think the problem is that even though. Um, you know, there's increased in awareness. There's still not quite a lot of understanding. It's it's really interesting to see that because when you look at at the experience of long COVID, um, mm. which is is quite similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, um, you know, you've got this kind of experience. People know now what it means to have long COVID. That they get this kind of bodily fatigue where they can't even get themselves out of bed. They can't do their, their everyday normal activities. But it's kind of brushed off as, you know, this is long COVID. Chronic fatigue syndrome, which effectively demonstrates the same symptoms, still hasn't gotten any more recognition in that way. Um, you know, people are still kind of, you know, yes, you use that as a, as a way to explain what it feels like to have chronic fatigue syndrome. But but it doesn't actually make the, the patients more recognized or, or their experiences more validated. So. I do think that there is something, um, and I, it's not necessarily just about higher education, it's about society as a whole, that these things aren't recognised. Um, and because they're so poorly understood, I think they, it will take a while until they get properly recognised. Once they are recognised, what kind of um, attitudes or behaviours can employers, managers, colleagues um do for people with these um, with these disabilities and, and illnesses. Yeah. So um, first of all, it's from my point of view. From you know, I mean, I've, I've obviously I've started out doing the research on fibromyalgia specifically, but actually all of the subsequent projects that I was doing were about chronic um, illnesses, neurodivergence, and disabilities more widely. And I've spoken to to people with many many different kinds of conditions, and and the kind of the common thread of, of all of it is. To listen and it's really interesting because people hear but they don't listen and that there's a difference you know it, it, it's something that people people are just hearing you you know they hear you talking about fatigue or they hear you talking about pain and they hear you talking about um energy fluctuations and and perhaps needing um you know a more flexible mm. time um timetable or more flexible working arrangements right. but they don't listen in the way that they're then saying, okay, I have heard you, I'm listening to you, here is what I'm doing. That step is missing. 
you know, people are like they're hearing in the sense that they're they they are kind of you know hearing the stories, but then it doesn't seem to sink in. It doesn't seem to result in a, in, in in a plan of action. Mm. And I think that is the part that most people were kind of talking about that there is so much labor, emotional labor, um, but also administrative labor involved in in getting adjustments um, because people don't understand what's required. And actually, especially now that we've been through this pandemic, we can see that actually a Zoom call is quite easily manageable instead of an in-person meeting. Mm. Yet the request is we're meeting on campus. You know, it's, it's that kind yes, of situation yes. no, where yeah, no, that's the expectation. Mm, mm, yes, it's, it's very excludatory. Uh, it's very exclusive um, as opposed to inclusive, um, where people have the same, you know, on, 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 a, on a Zoom call, everyone's actually literally on the same platform, you know, both on the platform, but actually in terms of, it has an equal voice because of the, you know, there isn't a three-dimensional nature to um, a, a video uh, webinar platform. So what kind of strategies can individuals take? So I think um, that there are actually quite a lot of things that individuals can do. Um, the first thing is obviously trying to, to listen. Um, that's one of the things. But also trying to be a good advocate and a good ally um, and being a good ally doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be disabled yourself to be a good ally for somebody else. So, for example, one of the one of my bugbears is under normal circumstances, when you're in a conference room, the lecturer or the conference presenter walks up to the lectern and goes, oh, there's only 20 of us in the room. I don't need to use the microphone, do I? You can hear me like this. And this is a really ableist situation because basically it just assumes that everybody is okay with that. Um, and there may not be. There may be people in there who are hard of hearing, who, who are wearing hearing aids, yeah. um, who have got issues with, with, I don't know, concentration, cognitive dysfunctions, brain fog. So using the microphone will actually enable them to, to process the information a lot better and a lot more quickly. But... If you're honest about it, in a room of 20 strangers, are you going to raise your hand and say, uh, actually, I need you to use the microphone because I can't make sense of what you're saying? Well, likelihood is, no, you're not doing that. So as somebody who's not hard of hearing, who doesn't have cognitive dysfunctions, who doesn't really not need the microphone, being a good ally would be saying in that situation, I don't need you to use it but there may be somebody in this room who does. I want you to use it. Yeah, that's a really good example. That's a really good example. And it happens, it will happen, you know, to staff and students, any, you know, anybody, anywhere who's listening to anybody speak about anything. Well, that, um, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's this, this kind of, that's the, the worst bugbear for me is, is, is the, the conference situation with the microphone. But it's also when you go to um, a conference and, and then there is this lunch thing you know where where everybody's networking um i mean the, there is nothing more ableist than the networking on the at the lunch buffet first of all it ex excludes people who've, who've got wheelchairs because they can't even see what's on the buffet because they are not at the right level because they're sitting in the wheelchair somebody with a mobility aid is not going to be able to do the lunch buffet either because they have to manage the plate um the glass 
the cutlery alongside the mobility aid. You know, it's, it's all these things yeah. that are totally ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. Also, British Sign Language interpreters usually take a lunch break over lunch time. So that's, that singles out a load of people who are not able to network over the lunch buffet. You know, again, it, it's, it's totally awful. And the worst of the worst is the diet itself. There are so many people with different kinds of dietary requirements. And at conferences, you can either be gluten-free or dairy-free, but you can't be both. I don't know why that's not possible, because in reality, there are people who are gluten-free and dairy-free. But at conferences, there's always the choice. Are you gluten-free or dairy-free? And you can't be both. Again, this is a totally, you know, it's just actually it doesn't require much to just think these things through. And that's what I'm saying as an individual. Um, we can start thinking about these things and just kind of become a little bit more consciously aware of what it is that we do. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I'm actually talking about in, in both books. Um, so the, the ableism in academia from UCL Press is more like a theoretical um kind of a theorization, if you like, of disability and ableism in higher education. And the second book, which is um, um, Lift Experiences of Ableism in Academia um, through Policy Press, that is really very practical. And it's giving you the stories of, of a, a number of individuals who are disabled and chronically ill and neurodivergent themselves. And they write from their personal perspectives and offer strategies for inclusion. And one of the things that's, that I say myself, because I've written one of the chapters in that book myself, one of the things that I'm saying, for example, is um, about deafness in higher education. Um, you know, if I'm asking you to speak up, I don't, I'm not asking you to speak more slowly. I'm asking you to raise your voice and to speak up. You know, I'm deaf. I'm not stupid. You know, and that's one of those things that's, again, it's a bugbear that people just make assumptions and I think that's what an individual can do. As individuals, we should just, we're not necessarily able to walk in somebody else's shoes, but we can try and, and, and put ourselves in a position where we think about what it may mean to be different in whichever way different. You mentioned the lived experiences book. Can you mention a little bit about part one, please? Yeah, so thank you for asking that. Um, so the book is, in two, as, you may, as you highlight or indicate, is written in two parts. The first part is really about um, kind of different um, ways of producing knowledge and generating knowledge, whereas the second part um, is truly the lived experiences of individuals. And in that first part, um, um, I've got, again, disabled and chronically ill and neurodivergent contributors who are talking about how um, different approaches to making sense of lived experiences are helping um, within the realm of, of health and disability. Um, and what's really interesting is that, you know, that there's different ways of looking at it. And there are people looking at it from um, emotional labor and the work of emotions. Other people looking at it from a more autoethnographic um, point of view, so more autoethnographical. Um, there's somebody else who's talking about embodiment and, and authenticity. So there is a lot there about the kinds of different sort of experiences and, and generations of knowledge. And one contributor, um, Dr. Professor um, Laura Ellingson from University um, from, from the United States, um, it, she's written about embodiment in her own work and crystallization as a, as, a, as a research method. 
And one of the things that she uses is irony. And it's really interesting to see how she engages with um, disability experiences and um, with, you know, a little bit of a laughing eye. But actually, if you think about it, it's not necessarily a laughing matter. So her chapter starts out with a, a conversation that she replays um, between her and a colleague who's um, saying to her, you know, what are you up to? Why, why, do you, you know, why are you so busy? And she says, well, I'm filling in this form and copying all the paperwork that I need to confirm to the university administrators that my amputated leg hasn't grown back so that I can get my parking permit. I mean, this is it's obviously it's completely surreal. It's, it shouldn't be funny, but it, in a way it is funny. But that actually is is kind of in in a in a nutshell the experience of people with disabilities in higher education. That on the one hand, you know, people are saying we're very inclusive and we're trying everything to include people and to be open to different ways of working. But when it comes down to it, when it comes to administrative stuff and 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 you know tasks like getting the everyday work done suddenly that support doesn't quite work in that same way because you still have to fill in um, the, you know, um, um, adjustments um, documents and, and asking for access for work, you know, and it's just a laborious process to go through year on year. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can, uh, I'm sure people can relate to that, um, just even if you, whether you have a uh, disability or not, you know, in terms of some of the processes that need to be done. Why do you think these processes still remain that exclude talent, not just from higher education, but society in general? Absolutely. Um, and I think the reason for that is that when those processes were set up, um, there probably wasn't anybody there thinking about the potential of somebody being disabled um, more permanently. Um, if we're honest about it, mm. um, disabled disabled people were never quite as seen as successful or potentially successful in in a higher education career. Um, you know, and we're talking fifty years ago. I'm not talking, you know, two three years ago. I'm talking fifty years ago. Um, disabled people wouldn't have made it to higher education. They wouldn't have gotten that far. So the processes that were instigated, um, and I mean, a lot of our universities are a lot older than 50 years. You know, those processes yeah. have been around forever. Um, you know, those processes that were put in, in place at times where there really weren't that many disabled people making it that far. Um, I mean, even nowadays, if we look at, at you know, things like um, diagnosis of neurodivergence, there are so many people who are diagnosed or labeled as autistic or you know given that kind of diagnosis and the formal um mm. the formal support that they need yeah. as, as autistic or as dyslexic when they're in their 30s you know we don't even know until you're 30 that actually you are dyslexic you know and you have been all your life so you've kind of muddled through um you know primary education secondary education perhaps higher education um, but perhaps not very successfully. So again, it's it's kind of this 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 experience that a lot of the people don't actually get there. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm you know it's it's quite shocking really to see how many people are dropping out or are are, are missing. And and we see that in the statistics, there is quite significant difference between 
this um, undergraduate disclosures of disabilities and and postgraduate taught postgraduate research and then academic staff you see a significant drop at each particular transition point mm. Mm. and what yeah. we see is really three different trends at play we see that on the one hand people that you know there are fewer disabled people in in higher education than in the general public we know that um but then what we also see is that that those people that stay find it more and more difficult so they drop out at the particular different you know transition points and the final thing is that those that do stay on and are academics they're probably least likely to disclose because it has repercussions if you do um suddenly you're no longer recognized as the scholar of your field because you are that disabled token person they need on every single hiring panel on every single um, committee, you know, you, they need a, a person who's who's from the black and Asian minority. Um, they need a person who's a woman or identifies as a woman. They need a person who's disabled. Well, you know, <laughs> as soon as you disclose any kind of disability, you're on that panel, whether you like it or not. Mm. And a lot of the people, and that's, um, you know, actually written in one of the chapters in, one, in, in the other book, in Ableism in Academia, I'm making a particular point about how disclosure um, is such a public statement that a lot of people don't really want to make it. And I've been talking about um, disclosure in that idea of cost benefit analysis and the cost is just way too great for in, in, in comparison to the benefit. For undergraduate students, it's benefic- beneficial. There is enough benefit there because they get extensions, they get additional support. They are often, um, you know, there are often opportunities of of being given hardware or software to help with their work of, you know, there's all sorts of support systems in place for for undergraduate students. So the benefits are greater than the cost. At academic level, they definitely aren't. Yeah, that's really sad, isn't it? That we we, we lose um, um, that talent and it drops off. Um, in, in all of these protected characteristics. This has been a very thought-provoking interview. What's one thing you want listeners to take away? The, the one thing that I would say is that everybody can make a difference and, and everybody should make a difference, even if it's just literal things, like I said earlier about the microphone or about the lunch buffet. It's not a major thing, but it makes a difference to those people's lives who need it. And, and that's the kind of small step change that's required um, for there to be long term, um, you know, massive change in, in, in the future. I do think that the COVID pandemic has brought about a little bit more understanding around flexible working and home office working. So there is a little bit more there now, but we shouldn't kind of lose traction we shouldn't lose that momentum that's happening right now um, by insisting people come back to campus so again it's about being an advocate if there is an insistence that people should come back to campus an individual can say actually that meeting can be held on zoom or on teams or whatever it is that whichever platform you know you institutions are using but the the point is is it's not shying away from piping up and I think that's the 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 most important thing with any kind of um, advocacy or allyship and whether that's for disabilities or for racism or sexism it's that kind of 
element that I'm hoping to get across to people that it's really important to not be quiet, to, to just pipe up. And the more of us piping up, the, the, the bigger the change will be. Thank you to Dr. Nicole Brown for her time. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I've been Santanu Vasant, and this has been Talking HE.